Kylie Dutson, a neurodiverse 30-something who is obsessed with organisational psychology and welcome to Lightbulb Moments, the podcast about all things psychology. Today we're talking to Tara Hewitt. Tara, tell us about yourself. Hey everybody, um, my name's Tara Hewitt, my pronouns are she and her. Um, I'm currently the chief exec of an NGO over in Ireland um, and previously I've been associate director for diversity and inclusion in the National Health Service in the UK. Um, but I'm also a nerd, um, I love sci-fi, me and my partner love astrophotography um, and doing everything to do with space um, and the stars. Um, I love sparkles um, and anything fluffy um, and generally I'll use that language quite a lot in my leadership talk as a way of connecting and engaging with other people but I'm looking forward to a fantastic talk today. On this episode please don't stick an alien or a half person in a dress on a toilet. I was just disgusted by the fact that that's the low bar that we set. Just because you've got a good story doesn't mean you push somebody to the front of the room and in their own words tell that story because it might not connect. Shall we kick off with, I'd like to share what I think is our origin story, and then I'd love to hear your perspective of our origin story. Um, So for me, uh, we met at uh, the NHS. You were in the EDI team. And the first thing that when, when we met, the first thing that really sparkled for me was that there are very, I say, I don't say this in a mean way. There are very few people in the world that I'm like, oh, they've got it. They've got that sparkle. They've got that ability to take data and wrap it into stories and get people listening. And you have that thing. And because you have that thing, I remember coming into um, into your office and just being like, hi, let's geek out about leadership. Um, and that's kind of how where I think our origin story began. But I'd love to hear from your perspective what you what your origin story of us is. To, to start with, I was like, origin story? What are we meaning by origin story? I was like, <laughs> okay, no, I, I was really grateful you went first because that, <laughs> that helps me understand where we're going. But yeah, I think like for me, you being part of the Race Equality Change Agents program as well, yes. and actually you almost became like a joint, you were, you were adding value as a participant into that program because of the depth of knowledge that you were bringing, but not from a more traditional um this is just the way you do things but i would say that you think outside of the box in a good way um with purpose with intent you shared concepts with me that that i hadn't maybe delved into so the stem based approach remembers having lots of conversations around uh, around that and i respect both of those sides i think that the work that we both sort of overlap in in that leadership that transformation that od that coaching that egni space in many different ways one of the things that it can sometimes lack is that that depth of substance and Mm. that linking it back to theory or linking it back to evidence-based practice in some way but then the other side of that is that you get people that understand the technical side but can't communicate that and can't connect with individual people and you need both I think to be good in that people space however we want to frame that in, in, in sort of whatever way so I think that's how I sort of 
connected and I said I, I think you're you're definitely one of the, the the talented leaders that I've connected with over my career um, I'm just sad that we obviously parted in terms of our careers going to different organizations after we met at the, in the NHS um, but that's that's also careers in life as well yeah so you you, you mentioned that and that's I, f- I feel like that's a really good segue into like tell me what are you doing what are you doing now where are you talk to me about that I think life's are like ziggly, squiggly, well, they can be ziggly, squiggly lines. My life seems to have been like a spiral in a, in a direction that I don't often know it's, it, it's sort of going into. Um, so obviously left the NHS as uh, Associate Director for Diversity. Um, originally was um, looking for roles um, in diversity um, in Ireland. So me and my partner wanted to leave the UK. Um, it's not a safe place to be a trans person anymore and a lot of people think about leaving um originally applied for jobs in the the tech sector space um and as probably people listening will know the tech sector um sort of went on a recruitment freeze and was told oh we're going to stop recruitment etc etc so the opportunity came up to do some management consultancy at a um, ngo in ireland um so Highlands National Trans Organisation, Tenny, um, and then the opportunity arose uh, for me to step in as the interim chief executive um, whilst the substantive CEO is taking a sabbatical around their health. Um, so I've ended up in this ziggly path to becoming in my first CEO role in an NGO, wow. um, which isn't what I intended to do over here. And it might not necessarily be my like permanent future because it's an interim role, but it's definitely interesting and it definitely, it's nice to be able to have an impact. Um, and I view it as being able to contribute to a country that I've just moved to um, and being able to add some value in maybe a different way than if I just merged into a, a big complex organization, um, which I'm honest, I am passionate about. That might seem nerdy, but <laughs> impacting on loads of leaders and changing culture is, is what gets me excited. But the work that I'm doing right now is definitely exciting and it definitely feels like I'm adding value to to the world because adding, supporting the community, influencing policymakers and, and trying to make sure that things improve for trans people in Ireland is, is really important. Yeah, it sounds like it's, um, like you say, it sounds important, but also sounds like a really exciting project. So that's that's great. Um, you know that, you know I love to ask questions. So at any point, if you're like, don't ask me that question, just just say, Jenny, I don't know answer that question. Um, but you started out by saying that you'd moved from the UK um, because the UK wasn't safe for trans people anymore. Can you, um, as someone who... I uh, listens to the space but is not in the space can you explain what you mean by that yeah so i think that the challenge in the uk is that we've seen this is more broadly but we've seen the mainstreaming of quite extreme right-wing philosophy into more mainstream politics we've almost seen the center of politics shift that's something that we've seen sadly broadly happen globally if we're looking at populist rise of the right in the states across many sadly european countries as well um but in the UK, it's led to um, a narrative around trans people in the media and in politics that's becoming increasingly more oppressive. So we know from the civil service, there was the, the document leaked around um, 
less support for trans people effectively in terms of how they'd be supported at work is the polite way um, to sort of define and discuss that. We had debates recently in Parliament around um, making it um, legal to ban trans people from toilets and other single-sex services. And where that's happened in the States, if you look at the data, and I said I like data, so in the US, um, we've seen the states that have introduced bathroom bills and and banning of um, trans people from um, single-sex services and facilities a 40% migration figure to states where they have more positive and inclusive policies. So New York being a a state that a lot of people are flocking to, or even to Canada, um, who've been welcoming um, the the trans community. And so the UK's in a position where it's been moving in in that direction. And one of the challenges for the UK is that because of Brexit, there's very little options for people to easily leave. Ireland being one or internal migration, there's differences between Scotland and England in mm-hmm. both tone and, and feel. But I'd say it's not just policy. So if I share like my experiences from coming to Ireland, we would get abuse in the street in the UK near to my house. I would speak to senior leaders in in the health service that would have attitudes that would make me not feel supported at work, um, some of which I wasn't able to necessarily share because I worked in the health service. So people not not standing firm with the idea that a trans person should be able to use a toilet or a single sex service. Um, and when you speak to senior leaders that reflect that information to you, you're like, well, that should be the very basic that I should expect from from organisations that that are grounded on social justice. The NHS is its history is is shrouded in that. Whereas in Ireland. We live in rural, like relatively rural in the middle of Ireland and nobody cares. I'm a purple haired trans woman with my trans partner and generally people are friendly. We do a two hour commute on the train to Dublin. People are friendly, like we talk and have conversations. My job comes up, taxi drivers generally. I think the the most racist taxi driver I've had since I've come here was somebody who was from London, um, which which was very telling in in some ways. Um, now, I'm a very privileged trans person. We both are, both economically. I'm white and I'm middle class. And I was able to make that, that shift quite easily in terms of coming to Ireland. I also transitioned like in 2006. And so things like my medical care is much more simple in terms of being able to transfer things um, over. Um, so I know that it's not always as easy as people leaving and there's definitely some internalized guilt around am I leaving a country where people are still fighting for their rights but Mm. I fought for equality for all of my life in terms of my career and activism and I love my partner and both of us both want to do good things in our work we both like we ideally want to set up a stem um, sort of um, not-for-profit in our own time and do something around stem outreach and but we also just want to go hiking, um, play board games, um, and not be worried that the government is going to pass some law that means that if we go into hospital, our dignity isn't going to be protected, or we're going to be, I'm going to be on the front page of the Daily Mail or the Mirror, not because I've done anything wrong, but just because I'm a trans person in a public sector role in a senior position. And I think that fear and anxiety is what just went, you know what, we get one life, we're going to move somewhere where it feels a bit safer and it, and it generally does feel safer here in Ireland than it did in the UK. I hope that sort of is, is helpful in setting the scene and context. Yeah, so much. And thank you so much for, for sharing that. It, um, honestly, it sounds exhausting. And yeah. I, it got me thinking, I was listening to um, a, a podcast on Pride and 
one of the people that was talking had said, you know, I'm extremely lucky. I have never experienced physical violence in my life. And I was just disgusted by the fact that that's the low bar that we set when you when when an individual feels like they are extremely lucky because someone hasn't been physically violent towards them based on their identity. I think you said about the tiringness, it's the length of time. So for me, I started getting targeted and abused when I was a student. So back, if you think back to 2009-10, we had the rise of the far right in Britain in terms of the EDL, the British National Party. I was a random law student that just cared about the world. And so I turned up at protests to go, we don't want far right people here as students do. You know, a student, as I protest probably every other week as a student in some way, shape or form, um, which is a, a good time in life to, to be able to use that. Well, what else are you going to do when you're a student, uh, right? Absolutely. <laughs> um, but I remember, so I was a, an NUS, National Union of Students rep, um, and I became like chair of my LGBT society before becoming vice president of my student union. But before I ended up being a sabbatical officer in a student union, um, I'd spoken at some events. The guy, anybody want to speak? And you go, yeah, I'll say something like me with probably worse public speaker than, I, than I've maybe become over, over the years. Um, and the British National, some supporters of the British National Party um, decided to make a death threat video about me because I was trans. Um, they went dressed up in drag, went to a beach, I think it was Black, near Blackpool, um, played the funeral music over the top and were making sexual slurs about me and someone called Waylon Bennett, who was the General Secretary of United Against Fascism at the time. And so the police had to give me panic alarms for my house. And this was a student, like I was like, nobody really like I was like there at an event but I was just a trans person and the reason they targeted me was simply because I was visible and trans and if you look throughout my career I've been for a very long time visible in it for a whole variety of different reasons but also then because even from mid-manager point I was the most senior trans person in the health service and I was constantly written about on blogs I would receive threats on social media people sending me nooses and all sorts of stuff and trying to navigate that and navigate my own feelings and emotions in your 20s and early 30s as you're trying to navigate your own career is tiring and it is really draining um, on top of the stresses that you have in the in the sort of workplace. So I think some of that's also the driver of, of maybe wanting to come to a different country and, and not necessarily wanting to be the figurehead for for. For activity in the long term, I'd, I'd much rather be said sort of sat there trying to trying to change culture and trying to help other leaders delivering um, change in organisations because I think that's where my skill set sits um, and I know that's where my well-being. Um, I, I, people who can spend their whole lives in front of that level of attention, I it's definitely not where I want to be. <laughs> I think. Well, firstly, that sounds horrific. So I'm sorry. Um, I think it, it sounds like you've you've moved for your own well-being, um, but that that passion around culture is is very much evident, right? So how do you? Um, because I know that there'll be lots of people listening that want to they want to be an ally, they want to support. There'll be organisations that you know want more diversity, but they don't know how to do it. What like when you're working with with, with organisations? What's your what, what do you tell them? So I think there's 
there's a few different things. This that's question is such a big question. <laughs> so I'm in my head now rapidly going, where do I go? One sort of very technical piece is that trans people's experiences are different and nuanced. Um, one simple difference is people who transition um, later in life and maybe transition from a position of maybe positional privilege. So you find organizations saying there's no problems for trans people. Here's a trans vice president or a trans senior manager in an organization. We're a really inclusive company. But if that person's transitioned at work in that position or in a very senior position to start with, they haven't had to navigate their identity and the way that our workplaces work all the way through their career and the barriers that that identity may bring. Now, the barriers can be nuanced. So one example can be nobody forgets you. So like it, might, it isn't just that I'm bright and purple haired and pink hair, but that probably is part of it also. It's probably, well, I, I'm going to be remembered anyway, so I might as well just be really memorable and really sparkly. But people do remember that that trans person that they worked with, and I'm not meaning to frame it in a, in a sort of completely objectifiable way, but I genuinely, from my experience, people do sort of go, oh, I remember you because you're trans. Um, people might not verbalize it, but that that's there what that means is that if you're good at what you do and you you do something well people will remember that but every single mistake that you have ever 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 made every time you have spoken out of line every time you have held a view or value that that actually has merged or changed which is part of growing and anybody who doesn't say that they've had something that was wrong and anyone who says that their values have always been in the right place probably isn't telling the truth and actually that would be a, a worry for me because all of us as humans grow that's part of life part of our careers but for trans people you almost that, that that's sort of held there in the background in a way that it isn't for people that maybe time will change um, how people perceive individuals and um, so, Again, the, the nuances, again, if you've transitioned earlier and having to navigate your entire career, is that um, a lot of recruitment is based on networking and based on opportunities coming up through social activity and social engagement. The amounts of senior leaders that I've met who um, it's they're afraid of difference. And so you can tell when you're around them that they're uncomfortable. So I've been managed by and been in the room of very senior people who they're not horrible. They're not not um, not trying. They don't seem like they're not trying to be nice. But you can tell that they're physically. They're not as engaged with you as maybe they would be with somebody who shared a similar background or maybe isn't as different as you are in some way. And I think there's similarities with things that are experienced by other communities, other underserved faiths, people who are experiencing racism in the workplace. And like I think that that's important to highlight that overlap to highlight how fear of difference creates barriers for career and progression but that that differential between so you come out when you're already in a vice president post versus as an example versus someone who's a student that's sort of having to navigate that entire career ladder um i think isn't discussed enough in talent spaces and mm-hmm. um, I think the other bit is around um, what you can do to attract trans talent to your organization. So sometimes things that are perceived as tick boxy are actually important. So mm-hmm. having a visual sign that somebody's going to be welcomed and can is going to have a good time in your organization, whether that's pronouns on email signatures, whether that's seeing people participating in Pride, but, but being very open about trans inclusion in their messaging, okay. that does matter. Um, but also, I don't think it's about the specifics. So if an organization is better at flexible working and is more open about part-time working and more open about remote working, I, I was reading a really great piece and um, 
LinkedIn around the the sort of battle between those into hybrid and return to the office and the the really strong opinions on that. But I think that's a values judgment. If what you're saying as an organisation is that we're so fixed and rigid that you must work in this particular way, if my if my identity doesn't fit into the rigidity of society, is that a place that I'm going to feel comfortable and safe to be? Are those values going to interact with how I'm going to be treated and how people are going to engage with me? And I think things like that, which seem like they've got nothing to do with pride and nothing to do with LGBTQ+, are actually really relevant. And you don't have to be trans inclusive through just doing work that looks at targeting trans people things which show your organization as being flexible welcoming different willing to sort of open up around holidays or open up around working hours or not having working hours like that that flexibility i think appeals to um people who generally by society have been isolated in some way shape or form yeah i am it's it's that cult. I guess it's that feel, right? It's that culture. It's those it's those things when that aren't necessarily the formal things. Um, the other the other little bits. Just as you were talking about those little signs and nods towards um, inclusivity, it made me um, uh, recall and laugh also at my own stupidity. <laughs> I remember we had a conversation um, and we were talking about uh, toilets at the time, and I was like. I'm I'm 100% with you Tara but what's the sign they put on the toilet is it a half half for someone with a skirt and half a leg and you just turned to me and you went no it's the picture of a toilet and I remember you saying that to me and me being like of course it is like but that's but that's another example as well it's not for trans people like I always talk about toilets in this because I think if we just talk through the lens of trans people, we're a small part of the population. And actually, it means that if we just focus on trans issues, when you're fighting for space and in a capitalist society where the finances and and people want to do things on scale, it's always going to be hard to break through, no matter how hard somebody's wanting to be supportive and ethical. But the issue about toilets isn't a trans person's issue. Like I, I use the example in um, Ireland um, and it, it resonates with people that I speak to in Ireland. If you've been to Dublin, Conley Station and the women's toilets after the barriers, there's two stalls, the sort of really dirty and the, like an MDF half wall <laughs> thing that's really wobbly. And they're, they're, they're just an example of not an ideal space to go to a bathroom. And those those sort of spaces when you speak to people and you go into people go well I don't I don't want to go to those spaces I wouldn't use those spaces unless I absolutely had to versus those spaces where you have three walls a door a sink a sanitary bin a toilet a shelf and a mirror and it's it's a big enough space for people with mobility issues as as well not necessarily a, a disabled toilet but a toilet which can be accessed by more people um, and maybe has a changing um a changing mat as well if possible or at least in the space around the toilet that people can use they are more accessible for people of all genders who are parents instead of them just being in the women's toilets they um, are nicer spaces to use because it, they're walls and not mdf bits of whatever that's wobbly and the door doesn't lock um, from a religious point of view having a shelf and, and, and different accessible for people the um, sanitary bin in terms of people with different disabilities where they might have um, medical devices that they need to dispose of in some ways 
the issue of toilets is an issue about creating better dignified spaces for ourselves as humans and trans people benefit from that mm-hmm. but you are right please don't stick an alien or a half person <laughs> in a in a dress on a toilet just stick a toilet sign and and that and don't turn a disabled toilet into saying it's just a toilet and don't change the women's toilets by just sticking a toilet on the women's toilets doors and it's still the same toilets that are there we need to design and we deserve to have better spaces as as humans that are creating the world around us the other thing is like changing rooms like who wants to get undressed with their professional colleagues in a workplace or in even in a gym the amount of gyms um the gym that i've joined i didn't check before i joined and it's like well have uh, do you want to get changed in that communal space if if i like cake i might not want to be getting undressed i might not be as g- good a gym goer as the rest of the people in the in the gym or mental health reasons or religious reasons or cultural reasons there's a whole variety of reasons whereas you look at center parks you go to center parks they have individual cubicles and family cubicles and everybody feels much better in that space than that big sort of changing spaces so you, you're absolutely it's great to reminisce on that because it's such an area that people get wrong, but actually the solution is so easy. It doesn't need to be controversial or, or just about trans people in any way, shape or form. Yeah, and I think that um, I I particularly remember as well, and so it is something that's that affects everyone. But I guess you don't you don't realise it affects you until or impacts you until something happens that impacts you. And I'll give you an example when um, when I had Harriet, my Harriet, who's now not your Harriet, my Harriet, who's now nine. Um, my husband Ali would constantly have to get the manager to block off the ladies toilets so he could go and use the sh- go and use the changing facilities for her in there because we made a point of saying this space is not inclusive of everybody but until you i think until you have that experience of whoa i feel marginalized like you don't you don't appreciate what it's like for other people but I think that sort of segues to actually a lot of the solutions I think in organizations that they miss. And so we there's a lot of work in organizations on big, expensive, unconscious bias training sessions, which they roll out as a way of solving all of the equality issues that organizations have, the silver bullet that's going to fix things. And I, if, if there isn't a silver bullet, but I think if there's an area that we should be focusing much more of our resources on, and I describe it as is that focus around cultural competency and that need to understand difference and us and I think what you're explaining um, is like that personal connection to an issue but it also can be one degree of separation that if you know somebody if you have a relationship with somebody that experiences an issue that 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 connection can help you understand um, and it can help you be less fearful of also that difference in some way shape or form and I think we've tried to solve those issues in the wrong way in organizations that we've probably had connection with in the public sector particularly often organizations think the solution is to get stories told Mm. Um, and they will put a story at the start of every meeting and they'll read a story out or they'll even get somebody in to come and tell a story and i remember being at an event a couple of months ago and and we didn't have enough time and people like but no, I disagree. Stories are great, Tara. And it's like, no, I'm not. I'm not saying stories aren't great. Stories are really powerful. A, you need to make sure the person telling the story is a storyteller. Like, just because you've got a good story doesn't mean you push somebody to the front of the room 
and in their own words tell that story because it might not connect. Actually, there's ways of doing fireside chats, let's talk events, ways where you can help pull out that story if you've got a good facilitator can, can be helpful. But what's probably more important for me is the person has had a connection to the issues that you're about to tell the story around or an individual that might have faced those issues. Um, so for, for trans people, for example, if you're going to tell a story about a trans person, the people that you're talking to need to have met trans people first. That doesn't have to be that they're their best friend, but they need to have maybe volunteered alongside a trans person. They've had a trans person in their team. Once you have that psychological connection, once you can connect the story back to a person that you had had a relationship with, it doesn't have to be best friends, but it has to be somebody that you can visualize in that situation. I think that's what starts to shift. Yeah. It starts to shift how people feel and that changes behavior and culture in a way that no PowerPoint presentations, no of sort of all of the money that gets sort of thrown at events and other activity isn't going to isn't going to do it's not none of that isn't isn't worth doing it's just that i think we should be directing a much heavier load around that understanding difference of us and cultural competency space the most organizations do and the reason they don't is it's hard mm. it takes complex programs if you're going to structure it in it takes a strategy just around that area um to, to sort of do it it's not just running an event you've got to find ways of bringing people into contact with difference um and so organizations that are complex often don't get to the point of putting anything in place to do that because it's much easier to run a pride event or it's much easier to pay for an unconscious bias seminar to come into the town hall meeting for example and yeah. um, to, to make it work that's just sort of a nice segue because i think that empathy piece is is often not discussed enough yeah thank you so much for that and i think that um i just think that everything that you you bring to the space is it's so eloquent and so thoughtful and really thought-provoking for others as well. So I really appreciate that. Um, as we come to the end of um, our talk today, um, although I could, we, we could go, I'm like, do you have another hour? <laughs> but as we come to the end, um, can you, I just want to touch on, um, I try to be an ally as, as much as possible. If people are listening and they feel passionate about equity and, and which which I obviously do um, and representation, what's like how what what can we do? What can allies do? So, so I think there's like I'm going to do it in two ways. There's okay. some very specific things that you can do, and then there is um, some <laughs> principles to sort of approach life by. I would say. So as I said already, some specifics is simple as putting your pronouns on your email signature or instead of asking the person you think is trans their pronouns just bringing that into your meetings or we all the way i was i frame identity is identity is personal to each of us it doesn't matter if you're trans or not um our identity is personal so why do we get to assume and to sort of um say well i think that you are this and i'm going to use this language about you and i'm going to call you this name um actually until I know what language you use to talk about yourself, I'm going to use your name. Um, and if I don't know how to pronounce your name, if I can ask you, I'm going to ask you. If maybe it, it's in a situation where that I, I don't have an opportunity to do that, I'm probably going to look it up on YouTube before I'm about to introduce you so that I'm trying to, to get that right. Um, but I'm not going to sort of say, well, I think that you use this pronoun because I'm making a judgment of how you look. Um, so that's really key in, in encouraging people to, 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 to do that and having conversations with family members, with friends about topics um, is, is important. Now, the principles, I think, to sort of live by, 
don't support hate, and I think that sounds really obvious, but hate isn't always labeled with a hate sticker. And I always say, is somebody framing a conversation around excluding a particular group? Mm -hmm. And if that conversation's framed in a way to exclude, it's probably not looking at the nuances of conflicting views. It's probably coming at it from a position, I would say, is, that's more hateful in some way, shape or form. The example I give is sport. So often people have strong views on sport, but we should around trans people's inclusion, which is really sad. But when I talk to policymakers and individuals around sport, I say that surely our position should be we want to try and make as many people as possible feel able to play sport and actually feel safe and able to participate in sport. And 99% of sport has got nothing to do with professional competition. It's about having fun and we should be looking to make that happen. There is definitely differences when you hear people talking about how we can't have trans people in sport those voices rarely come in it. Well, how could we have trans people in sport? It, that I think that that element is really key in when you're hearing a conversation of people talking about exclusion. Um, so don't spot hate, lift up um, other people's voices. So if you know a trans author, if you watch a podcast or you listen to a podcast, you watch a TED talk, you, you've seen something online where someone's got something to say who's trans, don't just elevate us about being trans. Like, Maybe we've got something to say uh, about um, uh, the like a great scientist that's making a point around black holes or space. My area of, of sort of passion. <laughs> uh, or maybe they're there to talk about leadership and they're just talking about leadership in its purest sense and not moving on to just their own identity. Elevate those voices. Listen and learn. So listen with intent, with the intent to be able to change your own perspectives on an issue rather than with the intent to come back and challenge the individual who's sharing that experience with you. That's that's always key. Don't be a bystander. So if you see something that's wrong, be willing to challenge that and be willing to speak up around that. And this piece you've heard me share before, and I think it's really key around inclusion, is being a lot like Winnie the Pooh. Welcome people so that they feel safe and warm to talk to you, no matter who they are, no matter how different they are, no matter whether you understand or even agree with that individual, but also in inclusion, because inclusion is about action. It's not just about saying that you care, being a little bit like Wonder Woman, being willing to speak out, being willing to challenge, and um, being willing to be the person that says, well, maybe we need to be more intentional about intersectionality. And when somebody says, oh, it's difficult, but it's worth doing, so we should do it. And being that person that says that, I think, is is part of that edge that we need to have if we're going to be allies or advocates or whatever language we use about making a difference in this space. So that would be my sort of top tips around being a good ally. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, so I, I think finishing on Be More Winnie the Pooh is how every podcast should finish. Um, I think you are a phenomenal woman. I think you're a powerhouse. Um, I feel privileged to know you. So thank you so much for doing this podcast for me today. And likewise, it was a privilege to come on it and I hope we get a chance to chat more offline as well because I think the work that you're doing is equally transformational. So it was, it was really great to come and talk today. So I hope you enjoyed that episode today with Tara. I um, I feel so privileged to to be able to listen to her speak, um, and I'm sure that that you feel the same. Um, my light bulb moment for this episode, I think, has to be around the nuance of language and how it's really important for us to be aware of the the words that we're saying, so that we can be more inclusive um, for everyone, not just for one subset of people. But for now, toodles. Toodles.